Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. On this episode, who knew that August was Mead Month and September is Honey Month? So in honor of these consecutive celebrations of one of mankind's most critical animal partners, I sit down with two of the country's most ardent mead and honey supporters, Bernice Vandenberg and Michael Fairbrother of Moonlight Meadery, to talk with the state of mead, the bee, and how to make the best mead you can at home. But first, a message from our sponsors. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of none other than Simple Home Brewing by two guys named Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. Maybe, just maybe, you've heard of them. If you want to streamline your brew day, make great beer, and have a blast in the process, head over to BrewersPublications.com and buy a copy of Simple Home Brewing. Welcome back, and uh, thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. Remember, if you interact with any of them, tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files so that they know they're spending their money kind of wisely, at least somewhat wisely. But enough of that. On with today's show. So you heard in the intro that we're talking about mead, and of course, if we're going to talk about mead and mead month, I have to have some people here who know what they're talking about. Folks, introduce yourselves. Well, this is Michael Fairbrother, founder and uh, mead maker at Moonlight Meadery. Hi, this is Bernice Vandenberg, co-founder at Moonlight Meadery. There you go. And, uh, where exactly is Moonlight for those who have not paid attention over the past couple of years? 
We're located in Londonderry, New Hampshire. The good old Granite State. So let's talk. The reason why we're we're here together is because this is September, Mead Month. Now, what is Mead Month and why Mead Month? So actually, um, August is um, Mead Month and um, September is Honey Month. Oh, there we go. We've messed things up already. National Honeybee Day on the August the 17th. And of course, it is the renowned um, Homebrewers Association Mead Day in August as well. So between August right through to the end of September is all things honey and mead related. What, what exactly takes place during Mead Month? What takes place during Honey Month? I'll talk to Honey Month. So September is the entire month is Honey Month. And what we try to do is we try to push out a lot of social media, a lot of uh, marketing on just anything honey. We try to focus on the honeybees, the plight of the honeybees, what people can do to help. We encourage people to become beekeepers, to support their local beekeepers. Just put a, a very special focus on honey, the types of honey, and the issues that we are seeing with honey. Well, and as somebody who uh, is allergic to bees... I'm happy that other people out there will be beekeepers. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, so you mentioned the plight of the honeybees. I know that it feels like like almost ever since I got involved in homebrewing 20 years ago that people have been talking about spates of colony uh, colony collapse and, and this. What is the current state of the honeybee? Yeah, so there's been a lot of um, uh, research being done by UC Davis, the Honey and Pollination Center. There has been a pretty steady decline. And there have been a few uh, recoveries. So it's it's really not known. But what is known is that neonicotinoids um, basically cause the bees to lose their sense of direction. And a bee is the only other living thing on the planet that can communicate directions um, to other things, so other bees. And we're the other one. So we're we're taking a pretty aggressive step. We've, we've helped sponsor the Honey and Pollination Center. Uh, we had been buying all true source certified honey so we could track our honey back to the beehives it came from. Now we're using certified organic honey out of Brazil. So we really wanted to avoid any kind of um, extra pesticides or anything that might be trapped in with the honey. Well, and that's actually a good point. Let's talk a little bit about that true, true source honey and the fact that a lot of people don't understand that there's a lot of honey on the market that you have no idea about. Yeah, so the definition of wildflower honey is any kind of blend of of honey, and now they're trying to get to the point where they can say what is uh, acceptable a blend in honey, and most of us presume when it says honey, it's just honey, <laughs> and that's that's what I would like to purchase. So um, nine years back, we learned about the True Source Certification Program, and that helped us really kind of see the the whole pathway of the honey coming out of the hive, going into a packaging place, coming from packaging to us, and then back. And it was an independently certifiable um, method of tracking that honey back. Now, in the United States, there's um, essentially the National Honey Board, and they raise money from um, a tariff on the on the honey that's produced and packaged in the United States. And so they help advertise where where the honey's coming from and, and where the honey's being used and their jobs really kind of promote the, the consumption of, of honey. And so part of that true source certification was to really kind of to help really make sure you understood where the honey was coming from and that beekeepers move their hives around the country. So even if you think you're buying a local honey, 
you know, here in New England, for example, the period of time where you can pollinate flowers is maybe three months. So if you're a beekeeper, you're not going to make a really good living with three months of pollination. Right. The bees go on a migration path around the country. And a lot of the bees are making their way out to California to pollinate those huge agricultural farms out there because uh, those entities, um, uh, beekeeping was not, they did not want to be beekeepers. They are quite happy to hire the bees and it's a huge stress on them. A lot of them don't make it. I've seen them cling wrap them, cling wrap the hives. A lot of them don't make it. It's a huge stress on them. But bees also get mites. A lot of people don't understand that they get diseases like any other, you know, animal or insect. Um, and um, there's even now a new phenomenon known as zombies. I don't know if you've heard about this one or if your listeners have. Um, this is a real phenomenon in the bee world where there's a particular fly that's attacking the honeybee, and um, it, it impregnates the, the the soft part between the head and the thorax, and when those eggs hatch, they eat the bee from the inside out, and the behavior that the bees display are very zombie-like, which is where the term comes from. So not just one thing, throw pesticides in there. Uh, I think you just found the next uh, sci-fi horror films instead of Sharknado. It's going to be zombies. <laughs> well, we can throw something more in there. Um, not all bad news, some positive solutions. Uh, MIT, right over the border from us here um, in New Hampshire, um, have been working on a, a robo-bee. And um, the theory is if we can propagate these robo-bees, we can utilize those to pollinate the California crops and remove the stress of the natural honeybee. So there are some creative, innovative solutions that are being tried out. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that will be pretty nifty. And, and yeah, the California almond crop in particular needs all that pollination. I think that's the, I, I think that's the largest one, isn't it? Yeah, there's over 2 million beehives moved into California for just the pollination. The honey board, those are the ones run, uh, what was it, honeylocator.com? Yes, that's right. Yeah, which is, for listeners, if you haven't been to that, that's a really great site for you to just kind of go to and discover all of these different varietal sources of honey and, and local and local apiaries and uh, honey producers, and then go, wait, what is a sourwood honey or what is this honey? or what, you know, and, and just really start to, uh, unfortunately, buy expensive honey uh, for fun. <laughs> I, I will admit I brought honey back from my trip from Australia last year because I ran across a couple of places where they had local honeys and it was like, I have never heard of stringy bark and this tastes interesting. And so now I'm going to bring it home and cut it down with some other honey to make a mead. Still waiting on that one. Nice. Yes, because if you think about honey, um, sometimes people don't understand, well, honey is honey is honey. It matters where the bees get the sap from. So we, in the mead world, we like to say that the, 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 the location or the actual source of that sap is just as important to mead making as terroir is to grape wine. And it's very simple how to tell. People ask us all the time, well, how do you know that a sour word or, you know, a lavender honey is different from a wildflower honey? Nature's very simple, Drew. The bee only flies so far. They only fly about five, six miles. Um, they don't fly at night. They don't fly when it rains. So if you take a hive and put it in the middle of 10 acres of nothing but orange blossom trees, guess what kind of honey you're going to get? Well, so now do you guys have favorite honeys? Uh, my go-to is uh, orange blossom for making methaglins, but I use um, the organic wildflower for everything else we're making now. And, and what about you, Bernice? Do you have a favorite honey? I also like the orange blossom, and we've also used uh, meadow foam, which has a light marshmallow in the background. 
concept is pretty interesting um, to make our base meads. But we do, uh, and we have made several single varietals. We'll do anything. We have an organic honey that we import from Zambia um, that's really, really earthy, um, toasted toffee with floral notes almost. Um, and I respect what these folks do because they hollow out tree trunks to come up in the African blossom trees and the wild bees nest in them. They harvest the wild honey. I respect that because the African bee is a little bigger, makes a little more honey. Good luck getting that honey. <laughs> Nasty little creatures. <laughs> but we do anything from an avocado blossom um, to metaphorm. Um, another one of my favorites is mesquite, which is like a light moscato, almost very light, not as much of the honey viscosity to it. Um, and then we, we do the uh, the orange blossom and the um, the wildflower. If money were no object for me, I think I would uh, I would just have buckets upon buckets of Tupelo. Yeah, that's that's expensive honey. <laughs> yeah, and very hard to find. Yeah, it, well, and as you were saying, all, all these honeys have different characteristics. That uh, stringy bark that I got last year, it has the cinnamon notes to it and dark caramel tones. Uh, yeah, and then oh. yeah, you go and you look at like a sage honey. Where you know we get a lot of sage honey out here in California, and that's very light, very clean with just that little bit of floral background to it. And then, yeah, Tupelo, which I love is, again, it's like that stringy bark, but even more so. I, like I, I used to love to make a Tupelo honeymead and offer it to people and they'd be like, oh, what would you put in here for spices? And I'm like, nothing. Nothing. It's, that's as Robin Hood fried duck as it gets. <laughs> we, um, with the uh, darker the honey the higher the mineral content generally. So the, the darker honeys tend to make a little more challenging for the mead maker to uh, really kind of show off a nice light floral note versus the earthy smoky notes. I think the most honey of honeys that I've ever tried is the Scottish heather honey, which is has that same sort of mineral woodsy, almost smokiness to it as the African blossom honey has. And it, both of those take forever to ferment. Well, it's the aging that's that takes forever to get it to taste real good. We're out six years now. We probably and it's amazing, but I probably want to hold it till ten. Well, I'm trying to remember. There was one one of the mead books, and I can't remember which one blamed Heather Honey for the reputation that meads have in terms of you know requiring years upon years upon years to age. It is. It is aggressive and. Um, if you take the cap off, like in our tasting room, if you take the cap off, you can immediately you can smell it right across the room. It has a really, really strong, strong bouquet. Um, and it's not for everybody. For some people, it's just too earthy. It's just, you know, too too much mineral for them, which is why it requires extra time to really mellow out. Well, now let's talk where meat is, right? Because I know that you guys have both been really strong proponents of mead, really strong pushing mead out there on the market. I know, uh, I know Michael, you're on the road all the time and, and posting notices about, Hey, I've got X, Y, Z cases and over here. And I want to, so it's like, you guys are really doing a lot of work to promote, you know, mead. So where does mead stand in this world that we're in today? Now that we've got, you know, a world of hazy IPAs and of course, everybody's favorite this year, hard seltzers. Where, what's mead's niche? What's mead's message? So mead is starting to um, get some traction. Um, we've been contacted by a, a number of nationwide chains to have us send product or meads down for them to consider. Um, and we have been successful. Cost Plus World Market has rolled us in all across California. That was the first state they put us in. And now it's from Ohio to Maryland, down into South Carolina, North Carolina. Um, so it's it's pretty um, 
satisfying to be on my end of the pipeline at this point and say, hey, <laughs> we're actually starting to make a difference. Um, because for the last nine years, you know, it's been a pretty long, long journey trying to build this highway of, of mead followers. And, and when I started, there were roughly 50 meteries, I think, in the United States. And now there's, I think, three to 400 or maybe even close to 500. Um, and it's it's depends on everybody making great mead. Because if you make a bad mead and customers try it, they're not going to come by and try somebody else's. But if you make a great mead, then people will come back and try it. That's why I've worked with the Robert Mundavi Institute to build their mead class, and I've taught there a number of years. And um, it's there's a lot of enthusiasm. You know, you got home mead makers that are making some of the best meads I've ever tried in my entire life. You got commercial mead makers that are spending their own dime and time to go and do these uh, MeadCon events like the one in Denver every year. And we just had one uh, MeadCon East down in Philadelphia, actually Allentown, but close enough. I flew into Philly um, and it's, it's great. I mean, we've got our meads in the grocery stores here in New Hampshire, the state liquor stores here in New Hampshire and the craft beer stores. So every single Avenue, even 7-Elevens occasionally carry our meads. So that's something I never thought was ever going to happen. And we sell on the average about a thousand cases a month right now across the country. We have our mead in 33 states. Um, we've exported in the past to Australia, Japan, Hong Kong, and Canada. And I think you can mail order our meads to a total of 35 states. So it's, it's hard to keep track, Drew, is really what it comes down to. Well, and I'm constantly amused because I'll see things where you guys are still having challenges with people not really understanding what meat is. And that includes on the legal side where, you know, you can do something with beer that you can do and you can do something with wine, but somebody goes, wait, you can't do that with mead. No. Yeah. Well, it's meads federally licensed under wine if it's over 7% alcohol. So the definition of a beverage is not inclusive of wine. So legally, um, so beer and cider and less than 7% alcohol, um, meads are considered beverages. Wine is its own category and gets taxed as such. So there are different types of wine. You have under 14, or now it's 16, under 16% alcohol, under uh, 23%. And then if it's um, if it's carbonated, there's a whole separate tax to it. So we've been working as a, um, as a community to help redefine and work with the TTB to find solutions for this. But I can't say that my flagship mead is a mead. So Kurt's apple pie is an apple mead with spices, with natural spices. That's the legal way I can describe it. But, and I can't say that on like the sidebar text on a message of the bottle that our mead maker likes this, and here's what he likes it with because they don't view it as a mead. So I can't say our mead maker, I could say our winemaker likes this with cheddar cheese or ice cream. So it's, it's, it's really, it's horseshit is really what it comes down to. I mean, it really is. It's just, you can't, you can't fathom how many legal loopholes I've stumbled into um, content that was not visible on our website, but was printable was a, a, a violation. Violation. And if you post anything on your Facebook page for your company or your Instagram or Pinterest or anything like that, and it doesn't have all the legal stuff required, that's a violation. 
you have to put the city and state and country of where your company is located, even if you have a link that says, for more details, go to moonlightmetery.com, which would have that information. That's a violation. So, yes, I've, I've taken a lot of bumps. I've learned a lot the hard way, but um, I still think the industry is growing at a very rapid pace, and I think it's sustainable. The biggest challenge right now that all of us are starting to feel a pinch on is hard seltzer has taken up an awful lot of shelf space right. in these stores. So they didn't give that space up for nothing. Somebody, somebody's taken it, and who's getting taken from? I, I hope your listeners are, are cautious <laughs> with what kind of beverages they support because uh, it's not mom-and-pop operations that are, that are making um, you know, some of these seltzers that are just – selling faster than Budweiser at this point. But let's ask the question then. So, all right. So Mead, I mean, as a, you know, as a general perception, I mean, Mead has that, that honey character. So usually there's a, a nice sweetness to it, even to the ones that are, dry, you know, fermented dry and balanced dry. There's still that, that floral sweetnessy type thing that, that reads in. And now that we've got this world where, I mean, so many people seem to be obsessed with the idea of like these zero sugar cocktails, you know, or, you know, zero sugar, ready to drink prepared beverages. How does, how does mead work through that? So it's, it's a wide open, infinite spectrum right now from low ABV, um, sessionable, uh, carbonated beverages, uh, to go head to head with even seltzers or ciders. Um, you've got meaderies that are making dry, um, almost wine-like characteristic meads. Uh, then you got others that are putting so much honey into it that it's got almost 30% sugar left <laughs> after fermentation. And, and I can tell you, those are extraordinarily sweet and they really play well at the beer festivals because only everybody's getting an ounce or two, but it's hard to make a living selling those because People want to be able to and drink and enjoy it. And, you know, I guess there is a market. There are people making a market out of it. But, you know, for, for Moonlight, we've really focused on uh, diversity. I mean, I've got my dry meads. I've got my sweeter ones. I've got my fruit and spice meads. I've got my fruit meads. I've got my spice meads. I've got hot pepper chili meads. I've got coffee meads. I mean, I've got over 60 in my tasting room right now. So you could come into Moonlight Meadery for the next you know, five days in a row sampling a flight a day and you probably wouldn't get to try them all. That's how many different ones we have. I think in my closet right now, I have a couple of Utopians and some Kurtz nice. and a couple others. <laughs> yeah, the Utopian is rather special to us. Um, that one we aged in Sam Adams Utopias barrels. And depending on what number or uh, release number um, shows how long it's been in the barrel. So the next release will be in January of 2021, and that'll be 10 years in the barrel. And then we'll do one in 2026, so 15 years, and then 2031, which will be our 20-year anniversary of making that mead. It's it's really got some beautiful, beautiful flavors to it. I was never so um, deeply honored and blown away to win the 2017 uh, Hampshire Brewers Award uh, from the American Home Brewers. And... Um, it's kind of like taking a cat to the dog show and you win. <laughs> well, I always laugh that there are some uh, homebrew competitions out there when they do the best of show. You can tell that sometimes the beer brewers have gotten uh, burnt one too many times. And so they now have best of show in beer and best of show in cider and mead. And like going, oh, come on, you put them both in the competition. Come on. 
get me started. That's that's been my mantra since the day or for last 13 years. So in 2007, I was run, helping to run a few uh, homebrew competitions. Boston Beer Company asked me to work on a couple of their competitions, and I used to run the New England Regional Homebrew Competition. And my philosophy was anything that's invited to the show, to the competition, should be in the running for best of show. And I think that the the reality is it's it's yeah they're different beverages, but they're all included in the same BJCP style guidelines. They're all really complicated to make. It's not easier to make a really award winning mead uh, or cider or, or beer, for example. Yeah, having achieved the national rank as a beer judge, it just it just completely floors me that you know we can say, hey, we're going to discriminate against this one and separate it into a separate category. I, I want to see it stand on its own merits. You know, we won Best of the Burbs in Ohio this year. So back on April, um, I'm at this festival, and I walk in, and I see this three and a half foot trophy standing on the side of the as the room and i'm looking at it i go wow that's beautiful i said what's up with the trophy and they go oh it's for the winning brewery tonight and i said seriously you're not going to give it to all the people that are here he goes what do you mean i said well i make mead and it's not beer he goes oh no, no, you'll be in the running but good luck you're not going to win because the breweries are so much better than mead i won <laughs> i brought home the trophy it cost me 300 dollars to ship that trophy home you can see how big this thing is drew it's ridiculous <laughs> And by the time I got it home, it was still broken. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, I'm, I'm super competitive. I, I try to share all the knowledge I've gained through hard lessons um, with, with fellow mead makers. And there are days when I need to pick up the phone and call somebody else for help. And that's how I want to be viewed is, you know, when I need help, I'll ask. And when somebody needs help, I'll help. And mead industry is at the infancy and we've got a long, long way to go. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the older school craft brewery days when it was, you know, just a handful of breweries and everybody was trying to make their way. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten calls from John Mayer at Rogue Brewing Company for questions about one of his um, braggots that he was making. I mean, I've done collaborations with uh, Jamil Zanichev and Mitch Steele, you know, and we've done a few in Australia and a few more, half a dozen across the country here. It's, 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 I ain't doing this for my health. I'm doing this because I love it. Yeah, you know, I love making brackets. You know, the um, porter from Smog City, you know, and I did a beer together and we've now, I think, done it 40 years in a row. And it's, it won, um, it won a gold medal last year at the Mazer Cup, which is the world's biggest mead only competition. So it's, it's, it's the stuff that dreams are made of. You all have been making mead now for quite a while. What in your mind has uh, changed? I mean, beyond more brewer or more meaderies, what what else has has changed? Like I've noticed a couple of changes in terms of like commercial meads. So twenty four years now making mead, and I would say in hindsight, the first twelve I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, rehydration of your yeast. There's more yeast types available now, so people are using, um, you know, liquid yeasts, dry yeast, uh, rehydration protocols. They're using some of these uh, really fast hot temperature fermenting meads or yeast now. So the the biggest thing that I've seen change in in how I make mead is that temperature control and rehydration and nutrient regime 
is is critical to making a really good mead taste amazing every single time you want to make it because all my ingredients change i mean everything we get our water from lake massabesic here in auburn new hampshire um if we're getting a lot of rain in new england we get a little higher ph if we're getting uh drought we get a little more mineral content so my water changes honey based on what kind of flowers the bees are getting to can change fruit uh, fresh fruit is different than frozen versus, you know, blueberries from Michigan versus blueberries from Maine. So all those things change. And specifically with our apple-based meads, you know, I can't get guarantee the exact same blend every year. I can ask closely and I know what kind of apples I like to use as my base. But, you know, I have to be able to trust my cider press guy just to, to, to execute on what I'm even asking for. I mean, I don't get to see the apples pressed unless I spend the time to go down to the farm and watch it. And I've done that. But it's it's really being able to taste and evaluate your ingredients and understanding where they're going to go. So I think the, if I could pinpoint two things, it's the nutrient, uh, nutrient regime really work in the first three days to grow that yeast population to an, a massive amount. And then it's it's just really good attention to detail for uh, fermentation kinetics with the the temperature. I think one of the ones I, I think staggered nutrient additions the, the the one that blew me away when I first started playing with it because yeah it used to be like go make a mead let it sit for a year and then maybe you can have it. I, I can't imagine commercially that works for you guys. No, and we're we're looking at about a two month to three month turnaround and it's probably about a month of fermentation the rest of that is just trying to let the the leaves all settle down um and the other um thing that i learned over the years is that don't add my spices at the start of the fermentation add them post fermentation so really get a nice beautiful clean mead maybe with some residual sweetness um i would work towards making it stronger with honey and stuff up front and letting the yeast just kind of get to its end of life add my spices and time it, taste it and see how they evolve. And my rule of thumb now is 72 hours. If I want something that's balanced, that's going to be able to win a medal, you know, 72 hours on the spices and take it off. If I want to make more of a train wreck, that's going to burn and have some heat to it and just kind of really be a, you know, in your face, this is what we can do to make a monster of a mead. Then I'll let it sit on the spices for like a week and it'll get that really rich, like chipotle is one i play around with a lot smoky note to it and just this depth of burn that kind of comes into the background that plays against the sweetness of the fruit and the honey but it's it's just you know so kind of like fruit if you're going to use a light amount of fruit you get a very light amount of uh, flavor so we target about six pounds per gallon um and then our spices if it's 72 hours it's pretty noticeable balanced and enjoyable but after a week, it's kind of like, whoo, <laughs> you're really pushing the pedal down hard now. Well, that, that would never happen here in America. Nobody ever, <laughs> wants, never, nobody ever wants just extremes. <laughs> One of the other questions I have for you guys is, I mean, you said that you don't add the spices until afterwards. I mean, do you guys do that thing where, you know, it's like you make a base mead and then you can split that out into varieties? Or are you trying, or are each of your meads, do they have like a different sort of base recipe? Most of the meads we make have different base recipes. Um, and even the ones that may have some common elements from other meads, there's a lot of blending that goes on. So like I, when I made my uh, collaboration with Scott Shar, it was called the common disaster. So it was a roasted or grilled pineapple 
Chipotle mead. And what I was doing was I was using some of the um, orange blossom honey to really kind of uh, add influences to the pineapple notes in the Chipotle. But then at the very end, I blended in a little bit of the um, organic African blossom uh, finished mead because I wanted to get that caramely look to the color. Right. So, you know, I didn't really doctor. I guess it depends on how you define doctoring. But, you know, I basically wanted to get more than what I could get when I how I made it with what I made it to. And I have the palate to be able to say, OK, I need a little more of this to get to where I, where I really want it to be. Now, is there something that you guys miss about making meat at home as opposed to making it commercially? No, because I still make some small batches at the at the shop. I mean, we've been playing around. I literally walk down the grocery store aisles and and look for stuff that maybe I want to make a mead with. So I think it's Red Mill uh, toasted co- organic coconut. Um, I saw it in the grocery store and I'm like, yeah, that'll work. Let me get about three pounds of that and I'll take it back to the toaster oven at the in the break room. And I put tinfoil down and put the flakes of coconut in. And got a nice mallard reaction on the uh, coconut, so got them nice and brown. And uh, rotated them over and got the other sides brown. And then I made a five-gallon batch with three pounds of coconut uh, with an orange blossom mead. And um, used the coconut more as a spice-like flavor than um, you know trying to get it. And it worked wonderfully. So we've been playing around with several different coconuts. And then I, I've been playing around with like a real you know. So if you see something on our website called Cherry Decadence. I used two and a half pounds of cacao nibs in a five-gallon batch. I took a cherry-based mead that was probably 12%, so a nice dessert-like sweetness, and just stuffed as much chocolate or cacao nibs into it as humanly possible. And to the point where what's happening when um, you've got all that cacao nibs stuffed at the bottom of your fermenter, the CO2 kind of binds and gets trapped down into the cacao nibs. So you can see the liquid kind of coming up to your airlock. And you have to gently shake the, um, the fermenter to, to get the CO2 big bubbles to come out from underneath all the cacao uh, down underneath. So it's, um, yeah, I'd say that's as homeschool or homemade making as, as I, can, I can get right now. Except the tanks are a whole lot larger, so when something goes, it's a real mess. Well, the, I was talking about our small five-gallon. We have a, a mead um, lunar society, which they get access or prepay for bottles that we're going to send them, and I try to give them something creative. Well, and speaking of something creative, I know that for a long time, you were giving talks at the AHA uh, Homebrew Con now about mead, but particularly about Braggot. And there was always that one holy grail that you kept trying to crack, which was the Brett character in a mead. Did you ever get there? So uh, the hard part with um, – so yeast honey is microbial, so it really fights the wild critters. Um, so we have made and we have inoculated some mead. Uh, it's called Curiosity. Um, and that was made with Brettomyces and Lactobacillus in an um, oak barrel. And we've we've tried for four or five years to let it get really funky. Um, no successes thus far. However, um, last year the the gentleman from Satipaja came over from Sweden to make some mead with us, and um, his Timo's son and, and my son are both the same ages, and they wanted to make a sour mead. Well, they started with a mead that's forty uh, percent sugar, so forty bricks, uh, and pitched the, the 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 bugs into it. So we got a white labs. Um, um, 
I forget lacto um Prexaluxus or one of one of the sours, and it's still fermenting. Um, I don't know how many decades it's going to take for it to to get to um, enjoyable, but it's not going to be quick, <laughs> especially with forty percent, which will probably result in something either super duper sweet or just very low in alcohol or a monster. Well, and maybe that can be their their retirement need. Could be. <laughs> I've got it up at the highest part of our metery, so we've got it um, about 24 foot high ceilings, and you know, really trying to let it get warm in the summer, get cool in the winter, um, and really kind of keeping it more how I can imagine uh, somebody might make a Belgian style mead. Okay, so now before we before we wrap up the shop here, what are your all's keys to making a great mead? So I. <laughs> I start with uh, as fresh of honey as I can get. Um, so you don't want to let your honey age too long. Even though it doesn't go bad, it still changes its aroma and flavor. I typically look at about 25% by volume honey, 75% by volume water or juice, depending on what type of mead that I want to make. Um, I never cook that honey, so I never heat it up beyond 80 degrees. I might add some hot water to get the initial dose of honey to... Um, liquefy or dissolve in the water but then i'm adding cold water through the other half to try to get it at my pitching temperature i really prefer lavlin 71b as my go-to yeast uh, i will rehydrate that with go firm and uh, once it starts to um, the go firm is basically you um, hydrate the go firm first 100 to 10 degree water you mix that up then I sprinkle the yeast on the top of the water so that it can start to proof and get used to the temperature of the, the hot water. And after about 15 more minutes, I'll whisk that in. I'll add uh, in the yeast starter probably a tablespoon of honey just to give the yeast something to, to think about while it's starting to become back to, to life. And then once the um, yeast container is, you know, always sanitize and sterilize, sanitize everything, make sure it's clean before you start. But once it, I put a uh, foil over the top of that uh, vessel and say you're making it in a two cup measuring cup so you put the tin foil on you can see the yeast start to grow and start to climb up and i'll punch that back down and then you need to attemperate so you're basically taking the temperature difference between your must and what's in the little pitcher or your two and a half cup and and getting it close within temperature range by adding some of the wort to it and you'd need a, a wine thief or something to do that to, I said wort must <laughs> take your must out of your, uh, your mead fermenter. And, um, it, it wouldn't take too much with a half, two cups to get it to the right temperature. But, and that's why, you know, all those things are really relevant. Uh, Sergio from Melovino has put together a really nice website called meadmaderight.com. Um, it's got all the information about your stag and nutrients and how to calculate, even how to calculate how much yeast you need for the, the gravity of your must. I tend to like to start at about 32 bricks, which is about 1.132 for starting gravity. So it's, it's a big mead, um, but I want some residual sweetness. And if I wanted to get um, to dry, I might bring it down to like, you know, anywhere under 100 um, and it's going to be very dry. Yeast is very fermentable, so if you want to make a braggot, I'd recommend you modify your mash temperature up a few degrees so you get some longer unfermentable sugars from your malt that will give the perception of sweetness. Right, yeah, because the honey is just going to go away. 
Yeah, honey, honey ferments down. And what when you talked earlier about the um, perception of sweetness uh, with a mead, really humans are trained to think honey is sweet because we've ever tasted honey, it's sweet. So if you ferment something down beyond to non-sweet and you still taste honey, well, people are trying to make logical references in their mind of how to describe that. And that's where, you know, that perception of sweetness can be there. And it's maybe not even sweet, but more of the reminiscence or the flavors and the aromas of the honey. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, you got to watch out. Your palate will trick you. It, yeah. it, right. It, yeah. It, it's used to thinking, oh, that smells sweet. So therefore, it's going to be sweet. Yeah, because I mean, memory plays such a huge role when you when you're tasting something. I always tell people when that they're always fascinated to to learn about their own palates. Um, but when you taste, um, it takes your nose and your tongue sensories working as a team, plus very importantly, your memory. So if there's something in the past that you associate with a smell or a taste, that is going to affect what you think you're tasting in that moment. And then um, your taste buds regrow every 10 days. So nobody's palate is ever the same. Take that, Robert Parker. <laughs> well, and, and it's also cultural too, because I think um, the one I always yes. think about is cinnamon. Because here in the West, we're used to thinking cinnamon is very much a sweet spice, right? You know, it's used in sweets. And then, but you go in other places in the world and it's used as a savory spice. And at least right. for me, like the first couple of times I ran into that, it sort of broke my brain a little bit it, it took a while to get around what my brain was thinking that should have been let's you talked about how you use the spices when you and you talked you said for fruit you're using six pounds per gallon yeah when i'm trying to make my blueberry mead that has just a ton of blueberries in it we're we're right on for six pounds so we make a thousand gallon batch we spread it between two one thousand gallon fermenters and half the volume is blueberry and the other half is the mead and that's if you're going for, I mean, that's in your face, right? That's smack you, in, uh, smack you with a baseball bat made of blueberries. Yeah, it's more like a red wine type of flavor at that point than um, than one you might think of as a blueberry mead. But I really try to go for color and clarity and flavor. And usually if you're getting, uh, like, if you make a strawberry and rhubarb mead and it's coming out light tan, you've done something wrong. It should be almost cherry-like. Any other tips about either making great mead or finding great mead or, you know, really just even how to push the mead message forward? Yeah, the number one thing people can do to really change a game is to ask for mead every place they go. And even if they don't have it, just and say maybe put it near the craft beer section because buried over here in the dessert wine section, there's so much diversity to it. It's meads. Well, how do you how do you think Moonlight Meadery Wilds is going to be sweet? If I try it, I'm not going to come back and listen to you. So the more you ask for it, like there are some really cool bars and across the whole country now that really kind of have dedicated mead and tap lines. I mean, Seattle, Washington. A big shout out to Schilling Cider House. You know, Sarah has, you know, really gone above and beyond to have some of my meads on ciders on draft there. Um, so, you know, support these folks, you know, people, you know, really do appreciate a good mead. I mean, I've seen my lines at the, our lines at the, um, homebrew con or mead con and join the American mead makers association. They got a great homebrew section now and, and the commercial track is really wonderful. Um, but you know, without people asking for it, the number one thing we hear is nobody asks for me if we don't want to carry it. Yeah. 
And I know it's not Definitely true. How you can it, help. I mean, every restaurant you go to, first thing you do is ask them, ask to see the mead list. And when they look at you in horror, like they have no idea what you're talking about, say, well, you got to get with the times. Like, what do you mean you don't have a mead list? Because the more people ask, the, the easier the job is for us mead makers, commercial mead makers out there trying to get the product to you, the consumer who is demanding it. And, and if you don't think it's not competitive, think of Budweiser who picked on mead with their Dilly Dilly commercials and then started B um, Beverage Company this year, which makes a 3% alcohol mead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, now, now you guys... Sellers- as a salsa, a honey salsa. <laughs> well, I was going to say, now you guys need to get into the game of like, I mean, hey, look, I mean, all, all your hard seltzer is sugar fermented and then flavored something else. Yeah, right. make a meat, meat seltzer. <laughs> yeah, we could make one certified organic too, which would probably right. just blow the socks off of them. There you go. And hey, you know, don't forget that honey is full of all sorts of good things for you. So you can even hit even harder on the health message. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, guys. You've just heard a business idea being born. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time talking about you know, Honey Month and Mead Month. Uh, and I assume people can go to moonlightmeadery.com. And- yes. Um, for the rest of this month, we are going to uh, be ramping up um, some mead pairing recipes or recipes made with honey. Um, so we've just added a new section onto our website um, and we'll blast it out on Facebook with the link to the website. Um, and a lot of these recipes come from uh, Chrissy Mampur's, uh, you know, the book that she wrote and authored. Um, so we're definitely promoting that. Um, but yeah, definitely visit the website. You can certainly order on the website as well. Um, and we look forward to you visiting us. And if you're in the New Hampshire area, please stop in for a tour and tasting. We would love to uh, to host you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, guys. And yeah, don't forget, mead, mead is not hard to make. It's hard to make really great mead, but it's easy to get started with. So I, I used to make my story. I always used to tell people is I became a brewer. And then I, at the same time, I was also suffering from insomnia a, a good number of nights. And I found that one of the most relaxing activities I could do was in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep, get up and make a batch of mead, you know, like heat up enough water to, to dissolve the honey, get everything going. And by the time I was done and had the carboy ready, I was tired and I could go to bed. <laughs> awesome. You can do, if I can do that in the middle of the night, so can you, and you can learn a lot. And just like with home brewing and beer brewing and, and beer tasting, your appreciation for these things grow the more that you try to do it yourself. So it does. get yourself out into your, into your brewery. You already got all the equipment. Now you just got to go get yourself some good honey. Exactly. <laughs> and don't forget to support your local meadery. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this chat about honey, bees, zombies, robot bees, and most importantly, mead, and what you can do to support it and how to best make your own. Got any weird honeys you love? Good mead tales or awesome drinking vessels? Let us know. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA Brewswag.com code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Chat with Champs, helping kids with cancer to connect with each other. 
Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. 